We're in Revelation chapter 3. If you'll open your Bibles there this morning, we're going to continue in our study uh, through the book of Revelation. We'll be picking it up in verse 7, Revelation chapter 3. As you're making your way there, interesting ha- thing happened to Brenda and I this weekend. Um, or this, yeah, this weekend. We, were, we had, you know, of course, Thanksgiving on, on Thursday. And uh, that kind of put a wrinkle in my schedule because Thursday is normally when I put the message together for Sunday. So I moved that to Friday, and Friday morning, woke up early, went right to work on the message. Brenda had some editing to do, and so we basically spent the whole day working, uh, working, you know, from home, from my office to home. And uh, Brenda there working, and we worked the whole day. We didn't leave the house. Uh, came time to go to bed. We go to bed, and, uh, and it's after midnight, and all of a sudden, there's a huge banging on my door, and, and my doorbell rings. What do you do when, when someone's banging on your door at midnight? Well, well, I'll tell you what Brenda and I did. We both grabbed our guns. Now, I don't, I don't know where you stand on the Second Amendment, but, but, but I'll just tell you, at midnight, when somebody's banging on your door, I'm pro-Second Amendment, all right? So, so, uh, so we go and we look out the window, and uh, there's, there's like four or five men standing in front of the bushes across the street as we're looking out the window, and, and of course, as we're looking, one of the guy points, and so Brenda's, she's on the phone to the cops, like right now, and I'm watching these guys like a hawk, you know, what is going on here? So they end up taking the path and going to the adjacent street and making their way down, so now they're out of view, but I'm still watching, and, um, <clears throat> and, and we're there, and Brenda's freaking out, I'm like, you're standing there with a loaded gun for crying out loud, relax, we're okay, but, but the cops come, and, um, and the the, you know, I, the door is locked, man. We're inside. I ain't going out, uh, gun or no gun. And I'm staying inside. So the cops get there. Okay, now we'll go outside. Well, when I go outside, I realize they had delivered the newspaper on Friday. It's sitting in my driveway. I've got flyers hanging on my front door that people would come by. You know how they do, and they hang flyers on your door. Well, on Friday, they must have done it, and we didn't go outside, so I never saw it. So to look at my house, we park our cars in the garage, so to look at my house, we weren't there. And, and, and the cops basically like, yeah, that's the kind of people, they'll bang on your door and ring your bell, and then if you don't come to the door, they, they assume nobody's home and they break in. So we're like, holy moly. Now, again, I, I, I discover this after... I unlock the door after I go outside the door. I ain't going outside the door till the cops are there. I keep the door locked. I keep it closed. Now, now, interestingly, 24 hours before, I couldn't wait to open that door. It was Thanksgiving. My kids are coming over. My grandkids are coming over. We had three Marines that we were able to host over, you know, for Thanksgiving from Pendleton. And, 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 and you know, what a blessing. I couldn't wait to open my door for them. But Friday night, man, I am not opening that door for anybody. Now, I tell this story by way of introduction because we're going we're to meet the Church of Philadelphia today. And, and open and closed doors are going to factor into this, this, this word of encouragement that the Lord has for them uh, greatly. One of the questions I get, most, one of the most frequent questions I get as a pastor are people asking me, hey, how do I discern God's will for my life? And what I'll tell them is, listen, one of the keys of discovering God's will is answering the question, what are the doors that God is opening to you? What are the doors that God is closing to you? And listen, there's actually things that we can do as believers that determine what doors God opens for you and what doors he closes 
to you. And so we're going to be looking at this, this idea of opening and closing doors. What can we do uh, to, to prepare our hearts for the work that God wants to do? What lessons can we learn from the church of Philadelphia? So let's jump right into it. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, And to the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Philadelphia here is the sixth of seven churches that Jesus has a word for. As we've seen, Jesus appeared to the Apostle John. John was, was banished to the island of Patmos, Um, because he was sharing his faith in Jesus Christ, and the Roman government punished him for it. Potmos was their equivalent of Alcatraz. John sent there. Jesus meets John there, gives John a vision, and in that vision therein is a message that Jesus has for seven churches. And these seven churches that Jesus has the vision for uh, are churches in, in a contemporary sense, and they're churches in a composite sense. In a contemporary sense, these are messages that Jesus has for seven churches that are existing in that day, in that age, seven specific churches that exist during John's lifetime that he has a message for. But also in a composite sense, these messages are for all of the churches that will exist, that have ever existed, that will ever exist, the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, of which you and I are a part, individually and corporately. And so as we look at these churches, we need to pay attention to what the Lord has to say because there are words of commendation that Jesus has for these churches and there are words of correction that Jesus has for these churches. And so for us, we need to be able to answer whether or not God is, would, you know, the things that he commends these churches for, would he in fact commend me for them? Or as they receive commendation, would I rather receive correction from God on that very issue. I need to take a walk with that. You need to take a walk with that. And so the messages are for them and for us, and we need to prayerfully consider if he's commending them, would I be commended? If he's correcting them, do I need to be corrected and vice versa? And so this is what we're looking at here. So again, this is the sixth church of seven churches that the Lord has this vision for, has these words for. And interestingly, for Philadelphia, no words of correction are offered. No words of correction are needed. Only words of commendation. And he says there in verse 8, as he speaks to the church 
of Philadelphia, the Lord says, I know your works. You see, I've set before you an open door and have not shut it. Now, an open door in Scripture symbolizes two main things. We need to keep this in mind. The open door symbolizes an access into God's kingdom as children, as residents, as those who are welcome members of the household. And it also represents opportunities for service. And so what Jesus says here, as we read there in verse 7, he, he says that these are the things, says he who is holy, he who is true. That word holy, it, it means pure. It means without stain, without blemish, without blot, without, without spot. It means perfection. And so the Lord is saying, hey, the, the one who's perfect is saying this. He also says, hey, the one who is true is saying this. And this word true, there's a, there's a couple of different ways that true can be translated in the Greek. In this way, it means literally not fake. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, look, I am the genuine article. The, I am God. I'm the one who's absolutely perfect, who's pure. There's no other one like me. And so he's saying that in, in the very beginning, setting the groundwork, and he says, because I'm pure, because I'm defiled, because I'm not fake, I'm not a phony, and there's none other like me, he says, I alone am the one that have the key to open or close the door. I'm the, I alone am the one who gives access to the kingdom. I'm the one who gives access to service in the kingdom. And he basically, in continuing in verse 8, he goes on to say, hey, listen, I'm the open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, what Jesus is doing here as he works on, as he goes on, he's saying, because I'm God and I can see everything and I know everything and I'm perfect, I can look at you and I can assess the way that you live. I, I can assess who you are and I can tell you that I have found your works acceptable in my sight. Jesus says to this church, you know what? Because I've found you worthy, I'm going to open the door for you. The door of access, the door of opportunity. Now, Jesus then goes on and he lists four commendable things that factored into Philadelphia's open door. There are four commendable things that Jesus is going to list that determine his decision to say, I'm going to open this door to you. And so this is instructive for us, and we need to be able to take a walk with that. First thing, if you're taking notes of the four commendable things that, that grants them access, number one, they had a little strength. They had a little strength. Now, this isn't a negative con comment on Jesus' part to, to basically comment on their feebleness. Rather, this is a commendation of strength on Jesus' part. As he says, you have a little strength. Paul was talking to the Corinthians and he basically told them, listen, not many of you were wise according to your flesh when God called you. He says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Why? Paul goes on to say that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's, that's the reason why. And in Philadelphia, you got to understand, it's a very small church. And not only are they a small church, but most of their members were poor and of a lower societal class. And because of that, they were marginalized in society. They were despised by the elites and by those that were in power. But even so, they had tremendous spiritual power 
that was working and flowing through their church. People were being redeemed, lives were being transformed, and the gospel was being proclaimed. And so Jesus says, look, there's an open door. Why? Because you know what? You've got a little strength. Now that word strength, you wanted to circle it. Uh, Nearby you could write dynamite. This is the Greek word dunamis. Uh, which we get the word dynamite from, strength, power, ability. Now, if you're a student of the word, this should sound familiar because Jesus promised this same power to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Put on the screen for you. He said, but you, to his disciples, and he says to you and me, you shall receive power, dunamis, Dynamite power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These disciples, trained by Jesus Christ himself, the one and only graduating class of Emmanuel University, three and a half year diploma, and Jesus tells them, you aren't ready to go out. You just spent three and a half years with me day in and day out, but you're still not ready. Why weren't they ready? They needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And if they needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit, how much more do you and I need the empowering of the Holy Spirit? And so what we we see here is that, man, that criticality of being filled and empowered by God's Holy Spirit such that, hey, listen, if I'm going to do anything for God that's meaningful, it has to be through His power and not through mine. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he was talking to them about a thorn that he had in his flesh. Now, this, this is probably metaphorical that he was saying that there was something going on in his life, some sort of thorn in his flesh. And he begged God, he's like, take this thing from me. It's just driving me crazy. And, and this is what God said to him. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, God allowed Paul to be afflicted so he wouldn't depend on his own strengths and on his own abilities. God wanted Paul to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how God wants you and I to operate as well. And so Jesus' word to this church of Philadelphia, his word of commendation and his word of, hey, listen, you've got an open door, your access into heaven and wide open for serving me. Why? Because you've got a little strength, because you have the power of the Holy Spirit working in your lives, because that's the power under which you operate. Secondly, the second commendable thing that factored into this open door they had available to them, notice there he says in verse 8, They kept his word. They kept his word. In other words, the church of Philadelphia was marked by obedience. Marked by obedience. Just as Job said, they could say, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Turn to your left there. Go to James chapter 1. It's just over a couple of books there to your left. James chapter 1, <clears throat> James here in James chapter 1, he's talking about enduring trials uh, with joy, trusting in the Lord, and he, he kind of concludes the thought there in verse 21, he says, James chapter 1 verse 21 and following, he says, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But, 
he says in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now we pray this every Sunday on, po- on purpose, very intentionally. Every Sunday I pray this. Because of this particular verse and reason. Because he says, be doers, not hearers, deceiving yourselves. See, we can be deceived by hearing God's word and even agreeing with God's word. We can be deceived that that is enough. It is not enough. We need to be doers of the word. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is not your works. You can't earn it. Jesus Christ did the work on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin and for mine. He offers to us, to us salvation to us as a free gift to say, receive my atoning work by placing your faith in me. That is not what this is talking about. James is saying, we now, having been saved, have the responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to put feet on our faith and to live out in a life of obedience, of obedience, keeping his word, putting feet on our faith. And this is what he says here. We're to be doers of the word, not hearers. Otherwise, we're deceived. And he goes on, he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, I hope you you, you glanced at yourself in the mirror before you came to church today. I did as I was getting ready, and I realized, holy moly, I haven't shaved in four days. I got to shave. I got to shave. Now, I didn't look at myself and realize Brenda made fun of me when the, when the cop came over on Friday. My hair is like this. I look like I stuck a, my finger in an electrical socket. You know, you, you might want to look in the mirror. might want to run a comb through, you know. And this is what, what James is saying. Look, if, if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like a guy who looks in the mirror and, and doesn't realize you got a, a little something right here you got to deal with, you know. That's the mirror of God's word. It reveals that little something right here, that wonky, this, you know, metaphorically speaking, that you've got to run a comb through. And so, James continues, he says, verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, notice what he just said there. He said, He who looks into the perfect law of God, into his word, and and then he he says and continues in it, and it's not a forgetful hearer, here it is, but a doer of the work. He doesn't say doer of the word, he says doer of the work. Why? Well, because God's word is meant to be worked out. That's the whole point. Put feet on. On your faith. And so what Jesus says, again, back in, in Revelation chapter 3, this word of exhorta- exhortation and encouragement and commendation that Jesus has for the church of Philadelphia, he goes, listen, you got a little strength. you got the Holy Spirit in operation. You're working under the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, secondly, listen, you keep my word. And because you've got the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, because you keep my word, man, you've got this open door of opportunity, open door of access to the kingdom of God. But thirdly, he says, hey, this is the other commendable reason why that door is open. He says, you keep my name. 
You've kept my name. There in verse 8, he says, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Now, the way that's written, the implication is that the pressure on the church of Philadelphia was everything but the encouragement to keep Jesus' name. In other words, they were enduring a lot of pressure to, in fact, deny the name of Jesus Christ. Much like we endure pressure to deny the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you've kept my name. It's interesting, if, if you read in Acts chapter 11, it's talking about, you know, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and everything that's happening there. And just kind of drops this little nugget in Acts chapter 11 that in Antioch, it was the first place that Christians were called Christians. Now, today, we think of it as, you know, hey, I'm a Christian. It's a kind of a proud label. It's kind of a, you know, just an everyday label. It's a, you know, what are you? I'm a Christian or whatever. But what we lose sight of the fact is that when the phrase was first coined, it was, a, it was a, an expression of contempt. It was, it was, a, it was a, a, a word that was used to make fun of and to mock people. It means little Christ's. And, and so the folks of Antioch would see all of these people, and it wasn't what they were saying, it's what they were doing. And they're like, look at you, you're just like a little Jesus running around. They meant it as a term of derision, as a, ter- derision, as a term of, of mocking. But listen, they earned this name because of what they did. This is what Jesus is saying to Philadelphia. He's like, you've kept my name. You, you are, you're behaving yourself in such a way that people see Christ in you. Simple point of application by way of question, do people see Christ in you? Or, or is your faith the kind of thing that maybe you've worked with somebody for years and they would say to you at some point, you're a Christian? I mean, you never want to hear that. What you want to hear is somebody comes up to you, regardless of, of what you've ever said, they, they come up to you and they say, you're a Christian, aren't you? I can tell. I can tell just by the way that you're acting. Hey, you have, you've kept his name. You've not denied his name. And so Jesus says, hey man, door's wide open. Filled with the Spirit. You're keeping my word. You're keeping my name. And fourthly, they persevered. They persevered. We're going to skip over verse 9. I'll come back to that. But notice what he says in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere... I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Why? Because you persevere. Hey, the door's wide open. Why? Because you persevered. You might want to circle that word persevered. Because you persevere. Nearby, you could write this. You could write to abide under. To abide under. It's, it, it's a Greek word. The, group is, the word is, is hupomona. It's, it's a Greek compound word. Hupo means under, and, and, and mona means to abide. And, and the, the idea here, the abiding under, I'll describe it this way. Brenda and I, so we went to, to, to Ireland last month, and, and you know, we flew into Heathrow. And it's a, it's, it's a 10, 11-hour flight, whatever it is. So, so the point is, you're on this plane, and, and now you're ready to get off this plane. Is what you, You're flying coach. You've been in this thing for 10 hours. I don't care where you're sitting in the plane. After 10 hours, you just want out. And I've never flown into Heathrow that this hasn't happened to us. You get there, and all of a sudden, they put you in what's called a holding pattern. 
And it's, and it's frustrating because it's like, I've been here for 10 hours, I want out. And they're like, no, we're just going to have you circle around and hold for a while. And so you sit there in this holding power. Now, control freaks of the world unite. It is the, it's the worst thing to be in a holding pattern. Because you have no control. You're there, you don't know, you don't, you don't know how long you're going to be there. But you're there, and you've been there long enough. It's like, I want out. Now, some of you all today in life, God has you in a holding pattern. Maybe even right now, maybe today, and maybe this is, you know, you're like, oh, this is why I came to church today, God. Because you're in a holding pattern, and God is speaking to your heart right now. And the word is, listen, persevere. The word is, listen, abide under. Abide under. What what does that mean? Hey, abide. I'm going to abide in Christ. I'm going to rest in Christ. I'm going to fellowship with Christ under. Under what circumstances? Under the circumstances that, metaphorically speaking, I've been in this plane long enough and I'm still circling around in a holding pattern. Somebody let me out. No, abide under. And that's the Lord's word to, to the church of Philadelphia. He's saying, listen, you guys, man, because you're operating in the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit, not in your own strength, because you keep my word, because you keep my name, because you patiently endure by faith in this holding pattern, hey, listen, I'm holding the door of access wide open to you. You're, you're a child of God. Your place is in heaven. This is your home. The door is wide open. It's not locked to you. And listen, there's app, there's, the door is open. You have the door open, the access of opportunity to serve me. Now, hold that thought. Interesting story. Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. In John chapter 3, we read all about it. Nicodemus is this <clears throat> religious leader, and, uh, and basically he, he's watching Jesus and everything that Jesus is doing. And most of the religious leaders are freaking out because Jesus is not marching to their drumbeat. But Nicodemus recognizes, and he goes to Jesus, he goes, look, nobody could do the stuff that you're doing unless they were God. So what on earth is going on here? Like, you, gotta, you have to enlighten me. Because, because, you know, clearly you come from God. So Jesus begins to reveal himself to Nicodemus. And he says this to him. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Life. Now here, get what's going on here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus saying, dude, like nobody could do what you did unless they were from God. Who are you? Jesus is revealing himself. So he tells him this, old, this story from the Old Testament. Now here's the story. Here's, the, here's, here's what, what, what he's referring to. Children of God in Israel, they're, in, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness, being led into the promised land. They all get bitten by these poisonous serpents and they're going to die. And so they go to Moses and they're like, hey, cry out to God for us because we're about to die. So Moses intercedes. He goes to God. He's like, hey, you know, what do you want me to do? God says, look, I want you to take a, 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 make a, a serpent out of bronze. I want you to stick it on the top of a stick and I want you to hold it up. 
and tell everybody, you look to this and you look to this bronze serpent up on this stick and that's going to heal you. Now, it seems crazy, right? What this was, was God speaking to these Old Testament folks, telling them, giving them a picture of the person and work of their Messiah, what he would do. The serpent represents sin. Bronze represents judgment. And being placed on the stick and lifted up, it's a picture of Jesus Christ being placed on the cross and lifted up. And and he, Jesus Christ, would become that serpent. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Bronze is a picture of judgment. So Jesus, taking our sins upon himself, being himself judged in our place on the cross and lifted up, and we then by faith are healed of the, of the fatal illness that we have, which is sin from the, from the bite of a serpent, and we are healed by looking upon Jesus Christ. So Jesus is answering this man, and he's saying, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. I'm your Messiah, and I'm going to be lifted up and pay this penalty. And Jesus goes on. He says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For, he goes on on in the next verse to say this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's what I want you to get. I told you to hold this thought. See, God's heart, God's desire is to see the world saved. God's desire is that people would know the person and the work of Jesus Christ and surrender their lives to Him. And what God is saying to the church of Philadelphia is, you guys get it. You are living a life of faith. You're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. You keep my word. You keep my name. You're patiently enduring by faith. And you are rocking the world in which you live. People are coming into a saving faith. And what Jesus is saying here is that, man... This city of brotherly love, we know Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. They got that name because the guy who established the church had this great love and affection for his brother, and that's why he named it the church. And the city of Philadelphia was established as a missionary city. Not missionary in the Christian sense, it was founded as a missionary city in the Roman sense. Because what they did is the government of Rome established this city to serve as an outpost for Hellenism and for the advancement of the culture of ancient Greece, right? And so what they would do is the whole purpose was for it to be a center spreading Greek language and culture and manners throughout the Asian provinces. And what these Christians, these Philadelphia Christians did, they recognized that the far greater mission was to live out the Great Commission, We live in a missionary city, but we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Our residence isn't in here. Our residence is home in heaven. We're eagerly awaiting our Savior from there. But in the meantime, we're occupying until he comes. Your life, Christian, is not about you. It's about Jesus who gave his life for you. And now that you have found him and surrendered your life to him, now you belong to him and he needs to be having you available for his work. And God would say to you, hey, listen, Christian, the door is wide open for you. You'll be filled with my spirit, filled with my word, not deny my name and be enduring, occupying until I come. I want to do a work through you. 
That's the idea. And this is what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. And these Philadelphian Christians understand we're to be missionaries for the Lord. Somebody said years ago to a friend of mine, they, they, he said, hey, what do you do for a living? She said, I, for a living. She goes, I'm a missionary. He goes, oh, where do you work? She said, Target. She's occupying until Jesus comes. So going back to, to verse 9, with these guys understanding their heart as a missionary, here's what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now let's break this down. He says, uh, he's talking about those who are of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but not. He says they lie. What's he talking about? Well, listen, what he's talking about, there, there are Jews that live in the city of Philadelphia. Some of them have come to know Jesus, their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. And so having come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, they no longer are seeking to, their, their religious righteousness, their salvation and their sanctification through their outworking of the law. They have left the, the synagogue, so to speak, to be in fellowship with other Christians to seek the Lord. They're saved. But then there are those other Jews who still are holding to the law, still holding to their works. And so they are not trusting in their Messiah. They are trusting in themselves. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's acknowledging those that are of the synagogue of Satan, who, who, who basically, they, they say they are Jews, but they are not. Paul spoke about the, the same kind of Jews this way in Romans chapter 9. He said, not all who were born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. And so this is who Jesus is talking about. He says there's a whole contingent of people that call themselves Jews that haven't surrendered to the Messiah. Now he goes on. He says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now what Jesus is not saying here is that I'm going to take those people and they're going to come worship you. No, what he's saying is they're going to come before you, they're going to worship me. The promise seems to be here, what Jesus is encouraging this church in, is he's saying, you occupy until I come, and, and don't grow weary in doing good. The Bible says, for in due season you'll reap if you don't lose heart, right? And so this, is the, this seems to be the exhortation of, man, you need, guys, just to continue what you're doing, because these people aren't past hope. These people aren't lost causes. We need to, 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 to trust that God's going to do a work and we need to continue to labor and to strive. And so he says, man, you need to, 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 to continue to do what you're doing, hoping to reach others for, for my name's sake, to act as missionaries. And so this church recognized, man, <coughs> the greatest mission we can do is to serve the Lord as missionaries. And trust that, that, that God is going to, to reach people through me. And, and so, so there's this promise. Now, listen, not everybody is going to listen. Right now, we live in what's called the church age. It's sort of a parenthesis in the prophetic time, timeline. This parenthesis of time. To where now we live during the age of God's grace and mercy that's been po poured out in Christ. And... and 
God is going to live that way. Why? Well, because he's, he's a God of love. He doesn't want, as Jesus told Nicodemus, he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants us to come to, to saving faith, to an everlasting life. But, and the Bible talks about this. Peter said this. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it is God's heart, God's desire that we should, we should come to repentance and he's going to be slow and long and patient with us. His word to Philadelphia is you keep doing what you're doing and trust and try and reach these guys. And, I, and, and you know, you're going to see by my grace, you're going to see some of them come to know me. But listen, the day is coming when his patience is going to run out. The day is coming when his patience run out. And this is what Jesus goes on to say. He's addressing the fact that judgment is coming on the world. And so he says in verse 10, Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is saying this. Listen, you guys, you're faithfully enduring. Keep enduring you're, I'm going to use you, but you know what? At a certain point, I'm going to be all done. My wrath is going to be poured out upon an unrepentant world, but I will protect you. You won't have to go through that. Jesus is saying that the church will be protected. Now listen, the Bible teaches, and as we continue through Revelation, we are going to see that what happens is, is that when God has, has give man, given man every opportunity to repent, at some point, he will pour his wrath out, an unre- out upon an unrepentant world. And when God pours his wrath out, he will take his church out of the way. And this is what Jesus is promising the church of Philadelphia here. And by the way, this isn't limited to the church of Philadelphia. This is, this is a promise for every Christian who places his hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the Bible teaches that when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth, God will take the earth, or the Christians, out of the earth so that we don't suffer the wrath that is to come upon unrepentant humanity. We see this pictured in Noah's day. What did God do when he was going to pour his wrath out on an unrepentant earth? He took Noah and his righteous family and he sealed them in the ark. And he protected them from the wrath. Listen, we are sealed in Christ. Jesus is our ark and we are taken out of the way as his wrath is poured out. And so that's what what he's saying here. And he continues in verse 11. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Listen, here's the way that Paul put it to the Thessalonians. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, and by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so this is the promise, and this is what Jesus is promising here, and he says there in verse 11, listen, I'm coming quickly. 
And that word quickly, it's not chronological, I'm coming quickly. What he's saying is, listen, when, when I come, it's going to be right now. It's like it's not a chronological like, hey, look, he's coming in five minutes. It just means, hey, when Jesus does come, it's going to be in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. And again, that's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption And this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, your flesh, your corrupt flesh is going to be exchanged for a supernatural body which is not corrupted, which is an immortal body. And he says, so when this corruption, corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Here's the question. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready? Amen. Because the day is coming and it's going to happen right now and in a hurry. So Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia, listen, here's the deal, man. You're operating the power of the Spirit. You're keeping my word. You're keeping my name. You're patiently enduring by faith. And I'm going to keep you from the destruction that's going to come upon the earth. And he continues now in verses 12 and 13. And we conclude with this. He says, he who overcomes, here's the promise. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, Philadelphia was a city that was prone to some dramatic earthquakes. And just before this vision, and, and, and generally in, in the in the related time frame, there had been a massive earthquake and and much of the city had been destroyed. So Rome has infused a lot of money. They're rebuilding this city of Philadelphia and a lot of the buildings have been reestablished already by this point, but the people were freaked out about the earthquakes and all the aftershocks and all of the the trembling. Still today, very earthquake-prone region. And so what happened was, even though they had this city and they had these dwellings and they had these buildings that were being rebuilt, many of the residents were afraid to live in the city. They were afraid to go there. And so they slept out in the field in tents. And what Jesus is telling this church of Philadelphia is, listen, you're mine. The door's wide open. You're a citizen in heaven. And so the fact is, look, you're a pillar and I'm going to make you a pillar. And he says, you're not going to go out anymore. You're not going to run out. You're not, have to go, you're not going to have this thing within you that says, i got to go sleep in a tent because where I live is unstable. He says, no, it's, you just take it to the bank. It's the most stable thing in the world to be my child and to be walking in faith with me. That's what he's saying here. And then he promises them this. He says, I'm going to write my new name upon you. I'm going to write my new name upon you. You ever seen the movie Toy Story? What's, what's, what's Woody's security? Andy's name, his owner's name is written on him. The, 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 the picture is, you're mine. You belong to me. He doesn't belong to Sid. Those of you who haven't seen the movie, you're like, what on earth? Sid's the mean kid next door. It burns things. It blows things up. that destroys toys. He's a picture of Satan himself, all right? 
And God says, listen, my name's written on you, Woody. You're mine. You belong to me. And that's the promise for us today.